Unfinished masterpieces dot the landscape as we look back at the great horizon that is music history. Mozart's Requiem, Schubert's Eighth Symphony, Mahler's Tenth, Bartok's Viola Concerto are all examples of pieces that were left unfinished by the untimely deaths of their composers. But opera has its unfinished jewels as well. Berg's Lulu comes to mind, Schoenberg's Moses and Aaron, Brusoni's Dr. Faustus, even standard repertory works such as Beethoven's Fidelio, Bizet's Carmen, and Offenbach's The Tales of Hoffman could be considered incomplete because the composers never really finished revising them. Or in the case of Carmen, another composer entirely was engaged to set the recitative after Bizet died. Perhaps the most famous example of an opera left incomplete at the death of its composer is the subject of today's opera talk, and we're here at the San Diego Chinese Historical Museum to discuss it. It's a work whose ending was sketched out by the composer, whose text was written and rewritten by the librettists, and was eventually set to music by no fewer than three composers. The ending of the work has always sparked controversy and we'll never know the answer to the question, what would the opera have been like if the composer had been able to complete it? The answer to that question tantalizes us even more because this was the most successful composer of his day, tremendously popular during his lifetime, and a 20th century composer to boot. The composer? Giacomo Puccini, of course. The work? Turandot a fairy tale of an opera concerning the story of a Chinese princess with a heart of ice which melts in the face of true love. I'm Nick Ravellis, and this is Opera Talk. Renato Simoni, the librettist, was the first person to suggest to Puccini that he consider Turandot for the subject of his next opera. This was over lunch at a restaurant in Milan in 1920. The composer had been in the middle of making some revisions to Il Tritico, an evening of three one-act operas. He was always on the lookout for operatic material, and during this time his eyes even passed over a treatment of Dickens' Oliver Twist. But it was Turandot, a magical play by the 18th century master playwright Carlo Gozzi that ultimately captured his imagination. Gozzi was born and spent his entire career in Venice, along with the other great reformer of Italian theater, Carlo Goldoni. Whereas Goldoni's objective was to move away from the traditional and much-beloved Commedia dell'arte form into a more realistic style of theater, Gozzi was attracted to the more fantastic, mythological, magical, and fairy tale elements of theater. Along the way, Gozzi tried to retain some of the stock characters of Commedia, like Arlecchino, Colombina, and Trufaldino. Gozzi pulled his dramas from various sources, like The Thousand and One Nights and collections of Oriental stories. The exact source of his play Turandotte is unknown, but there were plenty of Chinese antecedents in stories concerning a royal princess who greets her suitors with impossible riddles and who executes them for their failure. The play's premiere in 1761 was a great success, and Turandotte is considered his masterpiece. But let's return to that Milanese restaurant in 1920. 
What was it about the Gozzi play that attracted Puccini's imagination? There was an international rage for things Chinese ever since the Paris exhibitions of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which introduced Far Eastern porcelain, textiles, foodstuffs, and various artifacts to a new middle class hungry for diversion. They created a passion for the cultures of both China and Japan that Puccini's own butterfly helped to inflame. But the journey to Turandot the opera was an arduous one, a journey that caused the composer no end of difficulties and which he would not live to complete. Puccini used two librettists on the opera Turandot. One was Giuseppe Adami, who had worked with him first on the opera La Rondine. The other was a young playwright, Renato Simoni, who had actually written a biography of Carlo Gozzi. It was Simoni who pushed the idea of an opera based on Turandot, of course, and Puccini was really quite enthusiastic about the idea. But the composer reminded Adami and Simoni that the three of them would have to come up with a new ending, in Puccini's words, Turandot, by way of a modern mind. Well, whatever that meant. Puccini's desire was to retain Gozzi's commedia characters in order to provide comic relief as well as commentary in the midst of so much Chinese mannerism. These were to become the so-called masks, Ping, Pang, and Pong. Another character that comes purely from the imagination of the composer is the slave girl, Liu. She is the servant of the prince, Kalaf, and his father, Timur. As we shall see, Liu was to cause a crucial and almost insurmountable problem for the librettists. Puccini began work in earnest on Turandot in April 1921, a little over a year after that initial meeting over lunch in Milan. During the writing of the work, there was the usual ebb and flow of energy on the composer's part, but by March 1924, virtually the entire opera had been completed up to the suicide of Liu, a twist of plot that had been suggested by Puccini himself. It was, by all accounts, a miscalculation, for it would assure that future audiences whose sympathy had now been spent entirely on the unfortunate slave girl would have none left for Turandot and her famous prince. At this time, however, Puccini began to experience severe throat pain. Specialists from all over Europe were consulted, but in the end they informed the composer's son, Tonio, that his father was suffering from an inoperable tumor. Tonio kept the news from his father and the composer's wife, Elvira, with hopes that a cure could be found. Word of a new but painful radium treatment in Brussels brought the composer and his son to Belgium. But Puccini's heart gave out after surgery, and he died on November 29, 1924. Plans for the April 1925 premiere of Turandot were immediately scrapped. Puccini's publisher and the conductor, Arturo Toscanini, tried to solve a riddle of their own. What to do with an opera whose final scene had been left incomplete? There was a complete libretto, of course. In fact, 20 pages of notes as well by the composer. 
But after the death of Liu in the libretto, no music had been written. Although other composers were suggested, Toscanini prevailed in his choice of Franco Alfano to complete the master's score. The conductor even cut about 100 bars from that, but the artificially completed score was finally premiered on April 25, 1926, at La Scala in Milan. The premiere was accompanied by much fanfare, and everyone that was anyone in the music community was definitely there. But that first night, after the death of the slave girl Liu on stage, Toscanini put down his baton, turned to the audience, and said to them in a voice choked with emotion, the opera ends here because at this point the composer died. When the curtain goes up on Turandot, a Mandarin reads a royal proclamation to the people of Peking. The Princess Turandot, daughter of the Emperor Altum, will marry the first man of royal blood who can solve three riddles that she will present him. Those that fail will be beheaded, and the heads of those who've been unsuccessful are already on display for the crowds to see. Enter the old blind Tartar king Timur and the slave girl Liu. The king in disguise in order to escape from his enemies, is soon reunited with his son, Prince Kalaf, who is likewise in disguise. The latest victim, the Prince of Persia, is executed despite the pleading of the crowd, and Kalaf hopes to see the princess so that he can curse her for her cruelty. When she appears from a balcony to pronounce sentence on the Persian prince, Kalaf falls immediately and hopelessly in love. Despite attempts to dissuade him by Liu, Timur, and the three Mandarin ministers, Ping, Pang, and Pong, he approaches the great gong to strike it three times, a signal that he will be Turandot's next suitor. Act two opens in the minister's pavilion. Ping, Pang, and Pong reflect on how happy it would make them if one of the suitors would be successful and answer the riddles so that they can prepare a wedding celebration for their wonderful princess Turandot. The next scene takes place in a large square in front of the palace, the people of Peking gathering for the posing of the riddles to Kalaf. Turandot, in her aria in Questa Regia, describes the source of her cruelty. In ancient times, her ancestor Lu Ling was kidnapped and ravished. In revenge, Turandot will kill any man who dares to love her. She then asks Kalaf to solve the three riddles. To her surprise, and that of the emperor and his whole court, Kalaf successfully answers them all. She is devastated, still unwilling to give in to the desire of a man, but the emperor has given his word. She must marry Prince Kalaf. The prince, however, has another idea and poses his own riddle. If she can discover his name before dawn, she will be free to execute him. At the beginning of Act 3, the chorus sings mysteriously in the night, Nessun dorma, none shall sleep, as the Princess Turandot attempts to discover the identity of the unknown prince. In his aria to the same text, Kalaf assures himself of victory. Ping, Pang, and Pong appear, offering him wealth beyond his greatest imaginings if he will simply leave and forget about Turandot. 
And then even the people of the city threaten him with death if he does not reveal his name. Suddenly his father, Timur, and the slave girl, Liu, are dragged in, having been captured by soldiers. Turandot appears, demanding that Liu reveal the prince's name, even threatening torture. Frightened that she might call out his name under duress, she snatches a dagger from one of the attendants and kills herself. Her body is carried away with great respect by the people. Kalaf is left alone with the princess, and he excoriates her for her cruelty. Finally, he tears her veil away from her face and kisses her. She melts under his tenderness and finally admits that his courage inspired her from the very beginning. As dawn breaks, Kalaf reveals his name to her, thus placing himself in her full power. In the final scene before the imperial palace, Turandot proclaims the prince's name before her father, the emperor, and all the people of Peking. His name is love. To explore just a little further the Italian-Oriental connection, I've invited my good friend Jack Montgomery, the artistic director of Lyric Opera San Diego, to discuss a little further the mask tradition, the Commedia dell'arte in Venice. We spoke a little bit earlier in the uh, program about Carlo Gozzi and his uh, desire to keep the Commedia tradition going in his plays, and the fact that Puccini wanted to retain these three characters, Ping, Pang, and Pong, who are directly from the Commedia tradition. Tell us a little bit about this Venice-Chinese uh, connection. Well, Venice represented this link, or this door to the Orient, because it had this link with the Byzantine culture, a lot longer than the rest of Europe. And there is the link that we all know about Marco Polo and the myth of spaghetti and all of that kind of stuff. And there was a tremendous influence of the Oriental design and the Orientalia that was brought back by these explorers. And in fact, the masks of that tradition and the painted mask tradition of the Oriental opera, the Peking opera tradition as well, with its wild headdresses and all that kind of thing, became a thing that was of great influence on the Venetian carnival first. And there are examples here of carnival masks that are masks within masks that are a part of that tradition. The Commedia, because it was very much influenced by kind of uh, Saturday Night Live making comment upon what was going on, they were immediately able to take this and run with it because they thought that the painted masks that were fun were also a way to use those kind of characters. And since once you assumed a mask in the tradition, you stayed in that character, these Chinese characters from the carnival tradition became a part of the commedia so as th well. So there were Chinese commedia characters. There were Chinese commedia characters, precisely. And that assumption of the mask, these examples by the mask maker Alberto Saria, who is a mask maker for the Goldone Theater in uh, Venice. These are leather masks, and because they were leather, when you were not having a role, you assumed a paper mache mask. Mm -hmm. But when you actually assumed a role that you were going to keep for the rest of your life, you had a mask maker make you a leather mask. And so there is this long tradition in the Venetian theater of these 
Chinese characters that became a part of the Commedia. Who are some of the other traditional characters the in traditional Commedia? The traditional characters, uh, this is Capitano with his big nose, this is Cyrano, um, this is actually a Piero who has the teardrop, and of course there's Arlecchino and there's Colombino and Bergella, all those, and Dottore and Pantalone, this is a Pantalone. That, that's, that he, was, he was the old man. He's the old man, exactly. Right. And so they had those kind of stock characters that then they would play off. And it's interesting that these characters then, the Oriental characters, were they actually called Ping, Pang, and Pong in the original tradition? No, they were called Ping, Pang, and Pong in the Gozi tradition. He's the one that actually named them Ping, Pang, and Pong, although they probably were named Ping, Pang, and Pong by a trio of acrobats because they could do a lot of things that were tricks that were fun. Mm -hmm. That's another part of the reason that, and in many productions that of Turandot, there is an acrobatic element to Ping, Pang, and Pong. That, Sometimes they're shadowed by acrobats because that's a part of the whole Peking circus. And in the context of the opera, Ping, Pang, and Pong carry on the same function that they did in the original Commedia. Absolutely, they're commenting on the action. Commenting, making fun. Contemporary, and also being very wry. Mm -hmm. Pushing, pushing the story pushing along. The story along. It's, th these are gorgeous masks, and of course, it's a it's a great tradition, and we're really delighted. It's that, one of those things that fascinates me about, and why I collect them. Yeah, it's it's wonderful that uh, that Puccini decided to to hold on to that element because it 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 makes Turandot more than just a fairy tale opera. It makes it fun as well. Absolutely. Thanks for coming. Pleasure to be with you. That's the powerful opening orchestral salvo of Turandot, and in microcosm it captures the whole tone, the whole atmosphere of the opera. Bold, angular passages, chordal stabs that give the score its exotic spice. Its color is quite unlike any other Puccini opera, and it could really be called his one true 20th century opera. Why? Because it's a child of its time. Puccini didn't live in a vacuum. He was very aware of musical developments in the music of Stravinsky, Debussy, and Richard Strauss. In fact, he attended the Italian premiere of Schoenberg's Pierrot Lunière and liked it. All of these composers, in one way or another, were influences on Puccini, who was tremendously curious both about new music and new theater projects. One of the compositional problems that Turandot presented to the composer was exactly how to get a Chinese color in the score. One of the methods that had proved successful in his earlier opera, Madama Butterfly, was simply the use of original Japanese folk tunes in the fabric of the score. For Turandot, Puccini did the same exhaustive research and came up with five or six authentic Chinese tunes. I'd like to focus for a moment just on a couple of them. First of all, the so-called Molihua tune, sung by the children's chorus in Act One.
there's another uh, second tune associated with the characters of Ping Pang Pong, and this too is an original Chinese melody. But the thing that fascinates me about this score is its use of bitonality. Now, don't run screaming from the room. This is a very simple musical technique to describe. It's something that Puccini seems to have learned from his analysis of scores by Stravinsky, especially the Rite of Spring and Petrushka. Bitonality is the use of two different tonalities or key centers simultaneously. Here's an easy example. Let's take the tune Mary Had a Little Lamb. Here it is in the tonality or key center of C major. Here it is in the key of D flat major, a half step above C major. Now what if I played the tune in both keys simultaneously at the same time? Well, there you go. Instant bitonality. It sounds a little weird, also a little silly. In fact, no composer in his right mind would use bitonality, this wonderful technique, in such an obvious way. But just like adding spice to a great recipe to make it even better, using bitonality in certain limited areas of a score can give it an exotic, extra colorful flavor. Remember those orchestral stabs at the beginning of the opera? You guessed it, what makes them sound so unusual, so flavorful, so spicy, is that they're made up of two unrelated chords played simultaneously. In the lower instruments of the orchestra, we have a D minor chord. In the higher instruments of the orchestra, we have a C sharp major chord. Now these are two chords that normally should have nothing to do with each other, but played together, smushed together like this they create a kind of wonderful effect. The exact same chordal structure is used at the opening of Act Three, but with a softer, gentler approach to the orchestration. thing that Puccini does here is that eventually this bitonal flavor gives way to the luxurious key of G major and the most gorgeous moment in the opera, Kalaf's aria, Nessun Dorma. <laughs> Puccini and his operas, there are all sorts of resources available to help you get familiar with them. 
Turandot certainly is no exception. Let's begin with the CDs. The very first commercial recording of Turandot is a classic recording. It stars the incomparable soprano Gina Cigna in the role of the princess and the tenor Francesco Merli as Calaf, all under the direction of Franco Ghione, the Italian conductor. Birgit Nilsson, the wonderful soprano who was active in the 50s and 60s, also recorded Turandot. She recorded, in fact, twice, once with Franco Corelli, and then in this particular production with the wonderful tenor UC Bierling. They are conducted by Eric Leinsdorf. My favorite recording of the three is the recording with Joan Sutherland as the Princess Turandot. This is not a role that she ever sang on stage, but when she was invited to sing it in a studio recording, the results were really quite wonderful. Her calaf is, of course, Luciano Pavarotti, and they are under the direction of Zubin Mehta. There are some wonderful new books about Puccini as well as about Turandot. The most recent is this new biography and um, a scan of the works of Puccini by Julian Budden, the wonderful British scholar and author. It's a terrific book. I'm sure you'll find all sorts of tidbits about Turandot and Puccini's other operas. There is also a book about the opera itself, its origins and a complete analysis of the work, and that's by William Ashbrook and Harold Powers, Turandot, The End of the Great Tradition, because in fact this opera is the end of the Italian tradition of grand opera. There's a DVD available, in fact there are a number of them, but I think this is probably the best one because it features the wonderful David Hockney sets and costumes from San Francisco Opera. The Turandot is Eva Marton, the Calaf is Michael Sylvester. Out of all these marvelous resources, you'll find something to help you bone up on Turandot, but you don't need much. It's a wonderful opera. Puccini's fairy tale opera Turandot is a glorious capping of a great career in opera. Even though unfinished and with an ending that isn't entirely satisfactory, it leaves a terrific impression and is filled with the color, the tunes, and the dramatic excitement that we've come to expect of this composer. It also marks the end of a long and glorious tradition of Italian grand opera that began with Rossini in the early 19th century. Prepare for the overwhelming sound of full orchestra, chorus, and heroic soloists. That's the world of Turandot. I'm Nick Ravellis. I'll see you at the opera. <laughs>